Good morning again for all of you that didn't hear me the first time around with the technical difficulties, but we are so glad that you're here with us. Uh, so today is a bittersweet day because we are coming to the end of our journey through the life of David. You may look at uh, the rest of 2 Samuel and say, how is that possible? There's still so much more about David. Well, you're going to see, we're going to talk about it. We're going to give an overview of where it goes because it goes bad. You know, you'd think he repented. Everything's better, right? Life gets better. It doesn't. It gets a lot worse. And 2 Samuel is, the end of 2 Samuel is a descent, a swirl down the toilet bowl of life. And it is, it is rough. So I'm going to read. Go ahead and open with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, I'm not big, a big proponent of what is known as the five verses and a cloud of dust. And what that means is you, you generally, when a pastor does that, they will read the passage and then they don't reference the passage that they read again throughout the remainder of the message. Now, full disclosure, I'm kind of going to do that this morning. But I'm doing it with, with good intent because we're going to look at the end of David's life and then we're going to ask a pretty important question. But let's read the passage and then we'll kind of get into where we're going. I promise you we're going to touch a lot of scripture today, so buckle up. Here we go. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 and then 10 through 12, it says this. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I'm about to go the way of all of the earth, David said. So be strong. Act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now drop down to verse 10. It says, Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, 7 years in Hebron, and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read through all of the stories of David, we've, we've just gone through from the beginning where David is called, David is anointed, right? The, 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 the whole scene, the surprise where God sends the prophet Samuel out to find this new king to replace Saul. And, of course, David isn't even invited to, to the banquet. He's so insignificant. And so God pulls David out of nowhere. He, he raises him up. He fights Goliath. We're going to look at all these things. And, and we go through all of these stories. We've read all of these things about the greatness of David, all that he did, and how God worked through him. And I don't know about you, but as I read all of this and we looked through it, it occurs to me that at no point through the entirety of the story of David does God explicitly say that David is a man after his heart. It's mentioned once, and we're going to see it here in a minute. And, and I, would think, I, I would think that this would be an ideal time to do it, right? That, that at the death of David, just like it does with Moses, where it talked about how, how Moses saw God face to face, as no man had, how when Abraham died, he was the friend of God. That's normally when you put the, 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 the icing on the proverbial life cake, right? The epitaph, that, that he was such a great guy. It's not here. David dies, Solomon takes over, the kingdom is firmly established. Have you ever heard the saying, have you ever heard the saying, the proof is in the pudding? You heard that saying? Do you know that phrase is actually wrong? That's not how that phrase goes. It's a British phrase, and the actual phrase is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. 
the proof of the pudding is in the eating, which makes a whole lot more sense, right? Because you got a bowl of pudding there, like, the, what, is the, it's proof that it's pudding just because it looks like pudding? Like, it's not until you eat it that you actually know whether or not the pudding is good, right? So the, the statement is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. More, more or less, this means that the validation of a thing is not just found in the final product, but in the experience of the final product. It's not just what you see on the surface, but what the outcome of that product is when you experience and you, you have uh, some level of involvement with it. I have to be honest, having tried the proverbial pudding of David's life over the last few months, I find it rather sour. I find it to be somewhat lacking. So we've got to ask the question, and this is where I want us to go as we conclude this whole series of David. I want us to consider, because this whole series has been, what what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart, and how do we see that in the life of David? So here are the questions I want us to consider. What is it in David's life that made him, in fact, a man after God's own heart? And what are the applicable ingredients in the proverbial pudding of his life that we can take and include and implement in our own lives in order that we too might be men and women after God's own heart? Allow me to read those two questions to you one more time. What is it in David's life that made him the man after God's own heart? And what are the applicable ingredients in his life that we can include in our own lives in order that we too might be men and women after God's own heart? Would you join me in prayer as we consider these scriptures today? Father God, I do pray that you would speak to us in very clear and apparent ways today. God, I pray that you would remove any distractions that might be in our mind. I pray that you would, you would calm any concerns that we may have in these moments. And Lord, for these next, these next few minutes that our minds would be completely focused on the truth of your word, the reality of your servant David's life, and how we might adjust and adapt in our own lives that we too might be known as people after your own heart. God, speak to us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when we consider David's life, one of the things that jumps out at me and should jump out at you as we've come into the end, right? We see all these amazing things at the early life of David, and then we've just come through talking about David's epic failure where he he commits adultery and then murder in close sequence and writes them off as nothing, and he does repent. But immediately after that, again, we see the decay of David's life. And what we're reminded about, what what jumps out to me in the life of David that I think is important for us to understand is not how great David was, but the goodness of God when David's sheen wore off. The grace of God and the goodness of God in David's life, even when he wasn't a great man. Because here is the truth for you and I today. There is no such thing as the perfect life. There is no such thing as the perfect life. Jesus, of course, being the lone exception. There is no such thing as anybody that lives life and gets it right all the time. We we may do a good job of of putting on a veneer of of a good life. We may do a good job of putting on a veneer of being really good people. And, And let's be honest, we may do good from time to time. But each of us, if we were to be honest with one another, if we were to pass around the microphone and we were to talk about the real of our lives over the course of our lives, there would be plenty of messes to go around, would there not? Life is messy. Hey, do we agree on that? I mean, if not, if there's someone in here that has had the ideal life and you want to come up and take the microphone, I will happily sit down. But I, I know that in my own life, the messes 
come early and often. And David's life becomes a royal mess for a good minute. If we turn back and we look, we're not going to, I'm just going to turn back there. But if we look, we finished chapter 12, right? Chapter 12 is where, where we were a couple, last week and, and David repented. And, and God said, hey, your sin's forgiven, but there's consequences that are going to come from your action. Remember that? God said these things. The sword will never leave your house. And someone who's close to you will rise up and will try to take the kingdom from you. And you will be on a run for a while. And someone is going to do unspeakable evil things with your wives. And you did this in hiding, but he's going to do it in plain view of all of Israel. That side note that, that I guess isn't in my notes but is true is when God says he's going to do something, it's coming. Bank on it. Because we flip the page and we go to chapter 13 and David's life descends into unspeakable chaos. In 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 21, and you can read these later, we see that David's son, Amnon, is overcome with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. And so he comes up with this plan with this advisor that, that he is going to, he is so lovesick that he is going to tell his father that he is sick. And he is going to ask his father to send his half-sister to prepare bread before him, which he does. And David, being the gracious father, sends his daughter to care for his son. And while she is baking bread before him in his room, he sends everyone out. And the passage tells us that he overpowers her and he takes her. Similar wording to what happened with Bathsheba. But in this case, we know without any uncertainty that Amnon rapes his half-sister. Things get bad. Rapes his half-sister. This provides, again, shades of what happened with David and Bathsheba. So how does David respond to this horrible injustice and indignity? Right? David the king, this man after God's own heart, this horrible thing happens in his own house. What does the text tell us? How does it say that he responds to this thing? Well, to, to break it down to its most even or, or smallest parts, it says that he gets really mad. David sees this thing and he's, just, he's furious, the, pe- the passage tells us. Verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom, another son of David, never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated him because he had disgraced his sister. That's the end. That is the end of David's dealing with this epic failure in his house, this horrible thing that has taken place in his house. David sees and knows that this thing has happened, and what happens? He's really angry. We move on. Same chapter, next series of verses. Chapter 13, verses 22 through 39, it tells us that Absalom, the brother of Tamar, the full brother of Tamar, is, is again, will not speak a kind word to his brother Amnon. And he comes up with a plan. And what he does is he calls his brother Amnon out to shear the sheep with him as he's doing it, out there to oversee this thing. And when he gets him out in the field, he kills him. He puts him to death. He avenges his brother. Now, again, this provides us with very clear pictures of what David did to Uriah. How then does David respond to this further injustice? The text tells us he gets really sad. He gets really sad. And that's it. David wanted to see Absalom. He, he, 
He, he won't be consoled. He mourned many days for his son. That is the end of David's dealing with this epic failure in sin and injustice in his own house. It goes on, though, because in chapter 14, we see that David's counselor, Joab, comes to him and says, hey, how long are we going to deal with your son like this? And he tells him in proverb and, and finally encourages David, hey, let's, let's call Absalom back. He's the king's son. Sure, he did something horrible, but we all mess up. So let's just bring him back and restore him to his position, which David does. He brings him back. So how does David respond to Absalom's return? He's really glad, but nothing else. There's no dealing with what's been done. And in chapter 15, we watch as Absalom sets up shop right under David's nose and slowly steals the kingdom from him. 2 Samuel 15, 13, David is warned, the hearts of the, of Israel, the people of Israel are with Absalom. And in 2 Samuel 15, 13 through 18, we see that war rages within David's house as Absalom, whose name, which is interesting, you think about the name Absalom, I don't know if this jumps out at you, but the, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. His name is Absalom. His name actually means literally father of peace. But an incredible strike of irony, he is a son of war. A son of war. And Absalom takes control of the kingdom and hunts David just as Saul did. It continues to go downhill. We flip over, we get to chapter 16, and the prophecy of the Lord is further fulfilled. In 2 Samuel 16, 22, as Abham sets up a tent on, on the roof of the palace in plain view of all of the elders and leaders of Israel and sleeps with, fornicates with, all of David's concubines in plain view of the people. And how does David respond to Absalom's rebellion now? Well, he wages war. But he orders everyone to take it easy on his son. Do no harm to the young man. They engage in open warfare in chapters 18 through 19. And Absalom is ultimately killed and David takes back the throne of Israel. But David's life is an epic mess from the time of Bathsheba and Uriah till we come up to the, just about the end of his life. There's not a lot that's redeemable about that. I mean, we could, we, could do, we could do five or six chapters of talking about the realities of the consequences of our sin. And, and that's part of the truth that we've got to deal with here. That some of the difficulties that David faced were, in fact, the consequences of his own faults and failures. The prophet Nathan had warned David of the consequences, again, that would come from his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. That the sword would never depart from his house. Which going even beyond what we see here in Absalom and Amnon, we see that David is at war and, and bringing people to, to justice and, and dealing with the rebellion of other kingdoms until we get to chapter 21, 23. And 22 is David's praise to the Lord for his life. David, 23 is David's last words. And 24 just tells us his fighting men and then we're into 1 Kings. David's life starts with a roar but kind of goes out with a whimper. Samuel had warned him. Some of those, these, the, the fact is that a great many of the difficulties that David faced were consequences of his own actions. 
Some of the difficulties that David faced were, in fact, the consequences of the actions of others. Uh, while David did very little to mitigate the messes his sons were making, the truth is those are not David's sins. That being said, David still felt the sting of, sting of consequences and clearly struggled to find footing to stay upright and keep moving forward. But I keep coming back to this. That all of these consequences in David's life, at least, grew not only out of the sin of David's life earlier, but out of his failure to deal with the sin in the lives of those in his care. His failure to confront the reality of sin that was in his own house. The failure to confront the sin of his people, which was his job as king. Again, David's failure comes from a failure to live out his calling and to be consistent in the life that God had called him to and doing what God had raised him up to do. David, in fact, from the time we see him in chapter 11 to the end of his life, demonstrates the same indifference to the sins of his sons that he did to his own sin. Do you remember what happened in 2 Samuel 11.25? David says, hey, don't, don't sweat it. Don't. Don't let this thing that has happened, this death of Uriah or these other men, don't let this be evil in your eyes. And David, as he deals with the reality of what's going in his own household, doesn't deal with it as if it's evil in his eyes. And the struggle continues to grow. The proverbial pudding produced and consumed as a result of the seeds David himself planted and allowed to grow unchecked produced a pudding that was incredibly sour. And I think there's a warning in this for us. We must make every effort to pluck the saplings of sin before they have the chance to grow and produce fruit that we then have to consume. We must make every effort to pluck the saplings of sin before they have the chance to grow and produce fruit that we then have to consume. The, the ingredients of the things that these aren't, you know, we, we like to look at what's going on and we see prophecies and we think, well, God, God did that to David. Why would God do this horrible thing to David? Why would God, why would God send the sword into David's house? Why would, God, why would God allow this terrible thing to happen with his wives? Understand that what happens, God doesn't make those things happen. God looks at the reality of David's life and the future that's coming and the tendency and the trends in David's life, and God doesn't have to make those things happen. God just says, hey, David, your life, the track and trajectory it's on, if it keeps doing this, this is going to be the net gain. This is going to be the net result. And the truth is, if we look at Scripture, we realize that the same is true for us, that what we sow, we will in fact reap. That if we continue to allow our lives to go unchecked, if we continue to, to refuse to confront the sin in our lives, if we continue to confront the reality of sin in the lives of our friends and family, we are eventually going to reap that bitter fruit, and it will impact the flavor of our lives. The same is true in our church. If we don't deal with the inconsistencies and the ways that our lives do not align with the Word of God, we don't correct course and get right with God, it is going to impact the flavor of what the world experiences when they're around us. But there are two thoughts for our encouragement and consideration given the outline and the overview we just looked through. First, in light of the epic mess of David's life, we can know this, that being a person after God's own heart doesn't mean we have to be perfect. Being a person after God's own heart doesn't mean we will be perfect. If God can redeem 
and use a mess of a man like David, he can redeem and use anyone. He can redeem and use every, anyone. Now, perhaps if you're like me, you hear me say that and talk about David as if this, he's this epic mess. And, and that, that insults your Sunday school sensibilities. Because we talk about David as if he's this hero of faith. And the fact is, Scripture holds that to be true. That David is a hero of the faith. But in spite of his failures, not in the absence of them. If God can use David, he can use us. So what are the ingredients then that made David a man after God's own heart so that we can then seek to produce them in our own lives? Because I continue to think back to the life of Saul, right? Saul being rejected by God and David being received and then restored by God. The question that continued to, to run through my mind this week was this. What is the difference? What is it that differentiated David from Saul? What is it that differentiates a person that is rejected by God and a person that is received and subsequently restored by God? So let's consider the ingredients of David's life, if we will. Ingredient number one, obedience. Ingredient number one, obedience. Something that's important for us to consider this morning is that God didn't choose David because of who David had been or what David had done. But in fact, God chose David because of what God could and would do in and through him. If we turn back and we look at 1 Samuel chapter 13. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, it, it talks about the, what God is going to do, right? It talks about specifically Saul losing the kingdom. And if we look at... 1 Samuel chapter 13 through 14, God says this to Saul as Saul is being finally rejected. He says, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that your Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him to rule over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You want to know where the reference to David being a man after God's own heart is in the Old Testament? That's it. That is the only reference in the Old Testament to David being the man after God's own heart. Did anyone else notice that David is not explicitly named in that text? It just says that God's going to search out a man that will, in fact, be this. That, that God is going to, to search out a man. And what is, the, what is the key qualification for this man after God's own heart? It's going to be a one, unlike Saul, that will obey or keep the Lord's commands. Obedience. You know where David is actually mentioned explicitly as a man after God's own heart? It's by Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. It's in, in, that, in those verses, Paul paraphrases these words from 1 Samuel 13. And in hindsight, it is only in hindsight that those words are applied specifically to the life of David. Now keep in mind, David had a, Saul had a full, or Paul had a full picture of David's life. 
He's not just looking at David with Goliath. He's not just looking at David, the shepherd boy, being called out. He's not just looking at David, the conquering king that God is using in amazing ways. He is looking at the full corpus of David's life, and he looks at it, and he says, he was the man after God's own heart. Under the inspiration of God, Paul applies this passage specifically to David. David's failure didn't mean he hadn't been obedient to the Lord to that point. And it didn't mean he wouldn't or couldn't be obedient to the Lord in the future. Important for us to understand this morning is that obedience is determined by our action in each moment. It's not one of those things that we can lay back and and rest on obedience from the past. Or we can look forward and, and, and look with hope and rest on obedience that will eventually come. We have to be obedient in every moment of our lives. And there will be moments where we fall off the proverbial wagon, but we've got to get ourselves back on. What determines who we are is what we do in the moment. We see that in Second, First Kings, the passage we read earlier, that with the benefit of hindsight and with his last words, David encourages his son Solomon to do what God requires, to walk in obedience to him, keeping his decrees and commands and laws and regulations. David could have said anything to Saul or, or Solomon. David had incredible experiences, but look at what he says again in First Kings chapter 2. He says, be strong and act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper. David's last words to his son Solomon are, do what God says. Be a man of obedience. Being a person after God's own heart is about more than what we do, than what we've done. It's about what we'll do. That's why David can be an epic failure in some of these texts. And even as he's dealing with the consequences of his sin, in each moment he has to determine what he's going to do. Is he going to live in relationship with the Lord and obedience to him? And you and I have to do the same thing. Our lives are going to become messes at some point in time. We're going to deal with the difficulties that come in life. Sometimes because of our own faults and failures. Sometimes because of the faults and failures that that are propagated and pushed upon us from the lives of others. But in either case, we have to determine that we're going to do after the moments when those messes take place. Are we going to stand up and serve the Lord with obedience? Or are we going to continue to struggle and, and, and walk down a path of disobedience? Coach Mike Kelly, who used to coach the football team, used to say, potential is just another way of saying, I haven't done it yet. Potential is just another way of saying, I haven't done it yet. It's about what's going to happen in the next moment and the next and the next. We never get to rest in past obedience to the Lord. We must always continue to act in accordance with his word and will. And when God spoke to David in either success or failure, we see that David responded in appropriate ways. David was, in fact, in the sum of his life, a man of obedience to the Lord. Which brings us to the second point, and I think this is one of the the biggest keys. Ingredient number two is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is what determines whether one experiences restoration or rejection by God. 
Michaela and I were talking about this the other day. She's been studying some Old Testament passages, and, and she called me excited, and she said, Dad, the difference is repentance. That's, that's what made the difference between David and Saul, is that Saul never repented, but David did. And we can look at the passage, and, and we see that. We see that both David and Saul failed in spectacular fashion. Saul was known for regularly running ahead of the Lord and doing his own thing rather than waiting on God to lead and move in his way and his time. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 7 through 14, that Saul disobeys the Lord's command by offering sacrifices by himself rather than waiting on the Lord to bring Samuel in to, to do Samuel's part. He was supposed to meet at a place, and he was to wait there, and, that, and then God would send the prophet Samuel who would come and offer the sacrifices for him. It was not the job of the king unless explicitly told to offer the sacrifices. It was the job of prophets and priests. And so here Saul is waiting, and what happens? It tells us in the text that as he is waiting, the, the troops get restless. They get tired of waiting, and they start going home. And Saul gets nervous, so what does Saul do? He tries to fix it himself. So he does his own thing and he offers the sacrifice and God is displeased. And it's actually in 1 Samuel 13 that the Lord says that he is no longer going to preserve the kingdom of Saul. That he's going to move on to another who would obey. But it's not only in 1 Samuel 13 that we see this example. Just a page or two over in 1 Samuel chapter 15 we see Saul doing it again. Saul in this case is battling this kingdom. He's, he's coming over and taking over this, this kingdom, and God has told him as he conquers the Amalekites that his job is to destroy everybody, that no, nobody is to live, and that they are to destroy all of the produce of the land. They're to kill all of the crops. They are to kill all of the, every living thing is to die. But the, the text tells us that he goes through, and as they are destroying the Amalekite city, that they kind of do what God does, tells them to do, but they keep the king alive. And not only that, but they see that the Amalekites have some good things. And so they keep all of the best of the crops, and they, they keep all of the best of, of the animals that they have, and they keep all of the best of their things, and, and they save them back. And, and it tells us that the prophet comes, and he hears the bleeding, and he sees the king, and he's like, why didn't you do what the Lord, your God, had commanded And it says in verse 26, Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And only then does, Sam, does Saul say, hey, my bad. As a matter of fact, every time Saul is confronted with his sin, Saul says, hey, they, you know, I was afraid of the men. The men were, back when they were waiting for the sacrifices, they listened, the troops were all leaving, and, and I was losing the men, and we were getting to a point where we weren't going to have critical mass. So, God, I just stepped in to save you, Lord. You hadn't done what you said you would do, and so I had to step in and do, because you needed me, God, to do this thing. In this case, he says, hey, God, listen, it's not a big thing. We kept the king alive and we kept the best of the things, but we did it so we could worship you with it, God. We, did, we kept all these things because we thought you might want them. Now, we all know good and well that that is garbage. They kept them because they were good for them. And that is the issue with Saul throughout his life, as Saul continually demonstrates that Saul cares more about Saul than anyone or anything else. 
And Saul never truly repents of his sin. I have to wonder what would have happened and if the story might have been different after this case here with the Amalekites, had Saul repented. He doesn't, but had, had Saul repented, might his kingdom have been restored to him? And quite possibly, the fact, though, is he didn't. And Saul's rejection is rooted not in the Lord arbitrarily rejecting Saul, but in Saul's rejection of the commandment of the Lord constantly, continuously, time after time. But we see the same thing in David, right? Let's, let's take stock. What are the sins of Saul? Saul ran ahead and offered sacrifices to the Lord when he was to wait for someone else to do it, one. And two, Saul kept a little bit of the extra spoils of war for him and his men and kept a king alive, one dude after, out of a whole kingdom. Those are the two sins of Saul. Well, let's consider for a moment the, the failures of David. David disregarded the command and God's calling that, that had been placed on his life and ultimately pursued a path of self-indulgence as well. In 2 Samuel 11, we see David sleeping with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. We see David subsequently murdering Uriah to cover it up. And David even then uses and abuses his power, the position that God had given him, to make it all work. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, we see that David, quote, despised the word of the Lord. And we would argue the Lord himself through his actions. Now, I know, I know that we're supposed to, that all sin is sin, right? I get that. I, I, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to mock that. But all sin is heinous in the eyes of God. And, and we often want to say, well, you can't judge because you've, I don't know about you, but I've never killed anybody, right? Th there are things in this story that, that I haven't done. And when I look and I want to weigh the sins of David against the sins of Saul, can we just be honest with one another? I look at the two and I'm like, Saul's weren't nearly as big of a deal as David's. Honestly, it just doesn't seem as big. Like Saul's thing could be, be undone, right? Like you could, he could have repented and, and it's a sacrifice, right? He offered a sacrifice a little bit early. They, he could repent. He could make another sacrifice and make that right. Even in the second thing, Samuel comes in and they kill everybody and God's command has been met. You can't unsleep with somebody. You can't unkill Uriah. Those are permanent consequences that impact. And it wasn't just Uriah that died. Remember, it was multiple other troops that were innocent men serving the Lord, serving the kingdom of God that, that died because of David's sin. I look at the two, just me, and maybe I'm wrong for this, maybe I'm not. But if I look at the two, David is the worst guy between the two. His sin is more heinous. David in our modern economy would do time. Saul would not. So what is the difference? Again, why did God restore David and reject Saul? 1 Samuel 15, Saul passes the blame to others. First to the prophet Samuel for being late in coming. Second to his men because they were pushing him. And, and he offers apologies, but he never really owns his error. In 2 Samuel 13, however, we see David owning his sin. That he says, I have sinned before the Lord. We see David getting down in, in sackcloth and ashes. We see David adopting a posture of repentance. David says he's sorry, and his lifestyle and his actions subsequent to that reflect his repentance. The difference 
is repentance. In Psalm 51, we see David reorienting his heart back to the Lord, to the commands of the Lord. Being a person after God's own heart requires us to constantly and continually reorient our hearts back towards God, his word, and the keeping of his commands. As the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, so appropriately says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. As the song says, we are going to turn to the right or left periodically. It is going to happen in our lives. We are going to sin. We are, we are going to fail to meet God's standards. The question is, though, what will we do after that sin has happened? Will we repent and reorient ourselves back to God? Or will we continue down the slide to cover and, and mitigate our sin or what the, the perception of that sin is amongst others? Repentance is a return to right relationship through reengaging in obedience to God. And we see that in the life of David. That is the definitive, one of the definitive differences in David and Saul is David was a man who was willing to own his failure. David was able to humble himself and repent and turn back to God. And Saul did not. Ingredient four, though, is equally as important. It is simply this. The grace of God. What's the difference? The grace of God. God's grace saturates the story of David. Let's think back over the overview of David's life, shall we? David was a simple shepherd. The least of his father's sons. The youngest, not even of an invite to the dinner where the king would be decided. But God called him from the field. Had him anointed the next king of Israel. God didn't judge based upon the outward appearance, but based upon the heart. And David was a skinny, redneck kid standing before a giant. Let's be real. David stands before Goliath, essentially untrained and unarmed. Untra That's why it's so amazing to us. A kid with a slingshot and five stones against a giant, a literal giant armed with all of the best tech of the day. He shouldn't have won that battle. It's, you know, they like to say it's better to be, sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good. There's a truth to that. But I would argue this, it's, it's better to be blessed by God than good. It's better to be blessed by God than good. I would argue that God guided his son and maybe gave it a little bit of extra something, something. And God gave him the strength to slay the giant. Just a simple, skinny shepherd boy. God gave David victory over every enemy that stood before him from that time moving over. There's a long list, we looked through it a few weeks ago, a long list of, of kings and kingdoms, even Saul himself, that God preserved David and helped him overcome unspeakable odds. And, and we're told that David had that victory in the text because God was with him wherever he went. God ordered David's steps in the past. God provided for David's needs Every step through the present, 
And God ultimately preserved David's family name for the future and forevermore through Jesus, the son of David and the son of God. That is the promise to David. God's greatest promise to David, however, is that while he would punish David and his heirs like a son, he would love him forever and he would never remove that love for him like he had from Saul. From the beginning to the end, the story of David, the man after God's own heart, is a story of a man defined and directed by the good grace of God Almighty. Here's the truth. David did nothing to earn the kingdom. David did nothing to deserve to keep the kingdom once it was given to him. Yet God freely offered his forgiveness and restoration to David. Now we may consider this, I I know that I do, we look at the life of Saul, we look at the life of David, and we see the grace of God on the life of Saul, and and for all intents and purposes, at some point it, it does become absent from the life of Saul, as God sends a spirit that torments Saul. And we may look at that and say, well that's just not fair. And it seems unfair because grace is by default not fair. If we wanted what was fair, then both of them would continually have stayed in the camp of Saul. They would have experienced God's judgment and condemnation, and both of them would have been destroyed. I would argue, though, that even Saul did experience the grace of God, and that he lived to a fairly old age before he died as king of Israel. That even in the midst of all of his struggles and his sin and his lack of repentance, God still gave Saul a pretty good run. Grace is not God giving us what we deserve, what is fair. Grace is God withholding what we deserve and giving us what we don't. Grace is God withholding what we deserve and giving us what we don't. It is undeserved and unearned favor. And it is when we receive and rest in that grace that God preserves us And directs us to repent and return to obedience to his word and his will. And the same grace that was available to David is available to us today in abundance and without end through the work and person of Jesus Christ. The promised son that would establish the throne of David forever. I want you to turn with me to one more passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to invite the band to make their way up as I read this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh And following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These words provide a clear picture of the pudding that God has prepared for us in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And it is good. We, like David, are offered the free and abundant grace of God, which provides us with a new lease on life, which provides us with second chances when we fail and we fall. It's a grace that removes the stain of our sins and makes us worthy to serve as Christ's ambassadors. We can be the people after God's own heart because God's heart is for us. We can pursue the will and word of God because God continues to pursue us. And we can rise even from the death of our sin and live in salvation because of the resurrection life that is available in and through Jesus Christ. David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he was a good man who was faithful to God. David was a man after God's own heart because God was good and faithful to him, even when David wasn't. God and his grace makes our mess into more as we humbly repent and follow him in obedience. May we follow the example of David. May we not get lost as Saul did in his own greatness and grandeur, the goodness of his own life, but may we constantly look to the goodness and grace of God, repenting, seeking to follow him every day anew, knowing that in his grace and goodness, God has offered to us all we need for life and salvation through his promises. I want you to take your cups for communion this morning. And as you hold it in your hand, I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. And as you think over your life, I want you to consider the moments where God has demonstrated his amazing grace in your life. I want you to consider the areas where perhaps you've made a mess in your life. And like David, you need to repent and return to the Lord your God in obedience to his command and calling. God has called us to a great new life in Jesus Christ. He has offered us forgiveness from our sins, past, present, and future. His grace has made a way where there was no way. And God in his goodness has given us his Holy Spirit that he might guide us and live within us 
help us to be who God has called us to be. He's called us to live as Jesus himself lived. To sacrifice our selfish lives of sinfulness and live in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father God, I do pray that you would take these elements as we take them together this morning. And that you would remind us of your good grace that came through the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood. The manifestation of that grace is seen in the forgiveness of our sins. God, we confess to you that we have failed you time without number. We confess that we have made a mess of our lives and that we are in need of your good grace to lift us up to life again. We repent and pray that you would strengthen us through the power and presence of your spirit to live for you anew. In the model of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. If you'd open the bread now. The scripture tells us that on the night that Christ was betrayed, as he prepared to go for the cro- to the cross for our sins, that he took bread. And when he had given thanks, the Bible tells us that he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said to them, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you this morning. tells us that in the same way Christ took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples. This is my favorite part. He said, this cup is the new covenant. The the, the covenant being the promise. This This is the new promise and we could argue that it's not necessarily a new promise. It's the continuation of the promise. It is the fulfillment of the promise. The new covenant is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God in Jesus Christ. This cup is the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Yours and mine. Take this as often as you do it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ poured out for our sins. Lord God, we thank you for these good gifts of your grace that were given for us. We thank you for your great grace, which is continually and constantly made available to us. We pray that you would remind us of your grace, that you would remind us of the goodness of your calling, and that you would empower us to live lives of obedience and repentance as we serve you. God, we thank you for your amazing, wonderful, marvelous grace this morning. And we pray that you'd help us to live in it, that we too, like David, even in the midst of the messes of our lives, might be people after your own heart. In Jesus' name.